This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Uh, good evening, everybody. I'd like to start off tonight by acknowledging that we're meeting tonight on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'd also like to take this opportunity to welcome any Gadigal or other First Nations people who are with us this evening. Welcome, too, to all of you. Um, I, I assume some members, maybe some not, of the AIIA. Um, it's great that you could join us this evening. I'd like to start off as well by thanking the organisers of tonight's events. So a big thank you to the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, the AIIA, and of course Macquarie University Law School. My name is Leanne Smith and I'm the Director of the Whitlam Institute based out at Western Sydney University. Um, we're a public policy and civic engagement think tank institute um, and we base a lot of our work on the principles of social democracy and social justice. Uh, prior to that, I have practiced as a human rights lawyer in Australia and abroad, as an Australian diplomat, and also as a UN civil servant, serving, um, apart from in the fabulous location of New York City, also in Afghanistan, South Sudan, and uh, the Balkans. Most recently, I've just come back from New York where I was the chief of policy and best practice for UN peacekeeping. So tonight, we are all gathered here to explore the topic of how states influence each other's asylum policies, particularly in relation to deterrence. And we're also here to examine the role that diplomacy, as well as individual diplomats, play in that endeavour. We've got two keynote speakers this evening, Dr. Daniel Gesselbach from Macquarie University, the author of Refugees Lost, Asylum Law in an Interdependent World, and eminent legal scholar, Guy Goodwin-Gill, who's the Acting Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Unfortunately, our third panellist was unable to join us this evening due to unforeseen circumstances. Daniel and Guy will both speak for around 15 to 20 minutes, and then we'll open the floor for discussions, and I'd be glad to field any and all questions and comments. So we've got just around an hour for our discussion this evening. Now, I was delighted to be invited to be part of tonight's discussion because this topic that we're going to discuss tonight is one that I've had to grapple with in many different contexts during my own career. Um, as a young international lawyer in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade um, International Legal Division in 1999, one of the first pieces of advice I was asked to provide to the Minister was a comparative study of different countries' refugee detention policies. Even at that time, Australia did not step up well, let's just say. Um, it would be unprofessional of me to tell you how my advice was received by the Minister for Foreign Affairs at that time. But suffice to say, it was certainly a wake-up call about the direction of our diplomacy on refugee issues going forward. Then, as a human rights lawyer working in Afghanistan for the UN assistance mission there, um, on secondment from DFAT, I was at times called up by the Department of Immigration here to give my own personal assessment of the conditions for refugee return for particular ethnic groups in a particular part of the country. Um, it was never clear to me during those, those inquiries whether the advice was being sought formally or informally, or indeed what impact um, the advice I was giving to them had on the case or on the lives of those individuals. The last way I've kind of come up against this issue most recently, I suppose, is as an, a UN civil servant in New York for the last eight years or so. And I was observing the casting and the recasting of different countries' conceptions of their national interest and how they played out in different UN fora. 
from the General Assembly and its committees to the Security Council and other convention-specific kind of gatherings. One country could take absolutely polar positions in two different committees meeting in the same building on the same day on any given issue. So the complexity of multilateral negotiations, underpinned by each country's national interests, as well as bilateral and regional relations, is certainly not something to be underestimated. It's amazing to me how a country position on one issue, such as refugee deterrence, for example, can be built on a myriad of considerations, specific to, say, a domestic election, a regional security arrangement, or the national position of another country with which an important trade deal is imminent. The possibilities are endless. As Professor Bill Maley noted in his book, What is a Refugee? In the chapter he wrote on diplomacy and refugees, he said, the lesson here is that in the absence of political will, the mere existence of a diplomatic framework for multilateral engagement may count for relatively little. And I'm afraid I think I saw a lot of that um, at UN headquarters. At the Whitlam Institute, we are particularly interested in the interface of domestic and foreign policy. And for me, this issue of refugee policy is one of the clearest examples of the inherent challenge we have in demonstrating consistency across those two different spheres. What image of ourselves as a society do we seek to promote abroad? And how do Australian values translate in our diplomacy around refugee policy? How is our stance on refugees and on refugee deterrence affecting our broader international standing? So with these introductory questions in mind, let me turn now to our first speaker. Dr. Daniel Geselbach is a senior lecturer at Macquarie University School. He's the founding director of the Macquarie University Social Justice Clinic and a practicing refugee and immigration lawyer. His new book, <coughs> Refugee Lost, Asylum Law in an Independent, Interdependent World, analyzes the way restrictive asylum policies are spreading around the world. So Doug, welcome to the podium. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Uh, I too would like to start by acknowledging the traditional uh, custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. Um, and I, passed, I pay my respect to the elders past and present. And I also want to extend my very deep uh, gratitude to the AIIA and the Calder Centre for International Refugee Law for all the efforts in putting uh, the event together tonight and also for all of you in the audience for coming out uh, uh, to hear what we have to say. Uh, so I'm going to give you a quick overview today of some of the themes uh, from my book, uh, Refuge Lost Asylum Law in an Interdependent World, uh, which examines the issue of the spread of deterrence policies uh, across jurisdictions. And I'm going to start uh, with a little bit of history about the origins of the Refugee Convention and uh, where it came from. Uh, so it was, uh, it was developed in the aftermath of World War II, largely in response to the failure of states uh, to accept uh, those fleeing Nazi Germany um, at their borders. So the, uh, the picture I have up here of this is of the St. Louis vessel. Uh, and the story of the passengers of that boat provides an instructive example. So they set off from Hamburg uh, in, in May of 1939, uh, a little over 900 <coughs> passengers, mostly um, Jews being Nazi Germany, and they all had landing um, documents to, to, that would let them land in Cuba. 
But upon arrival, the Cuban government decided they didn't want to let them in, and so they were pushed back out to sea, uh, where they tried to make uh, to, to disembark at Miami. And they made it within uh, sight of Miami. They could see the, the lights in the distance, but they were stopped by U.S. Uh, Coast Guard vessels and uh, stopped from uh, entering the United States. There was negotiations with Canada to have them disembarked there, but they fell through. And ultimately, the boat was returned to uh, to Europe, where the passenger disembarked at a number of different uh, European countries, uh, some of which subsequently fell to uh, the um, the, the Nazis and basically they estimate around a quarter of these people end up dying in concentration camps. And it was this memory of this event uh, that weighed on the minds of the drafts of the Refugee Convention when uh, developing protections for asylum seekers. And uh, you know, the cornerstone of the, that convention uh, which, uh, is the idea of non-refoulement, which is that people should not be returned uh, to a location where they face certain types of persecution. But we have entered, I guess, dangerous times with respect to the state's attitude towards these hard-won protections. And uh, we've entered what some describe as a deterrence paradigm, where states are continuing to pay lip service to their obligations under the Refugee Convention, but uh, bending over backwards to come up with new and uh, innovative ways of keeping asylum seekers from actually accessing these protections. Uh, this deterrence paradigm uh, provides really fertile grounds for the transfer of policies between jurisdictions. And policy learning happens in all um, areas of, of law and policy. It, and it makes sense to keep track of what other countries are doing uh, uh, when developing domestic policy responses. But there's a few characteristics about uh, asylum policy that make it particularly susceptible to transfers. So the the first issue is that, or the first factor is that states generally share very similar uh, policy goals. And uh, in these days, unfortunately, in the deterrence paradigm, it's a desire to try and keep asylum seekers away from their territories. But they're also operating within the same international framework. They, they face the same external constraints to meeting these goals, which are the protections in the Refugee Convention. And when a state comes up with, I guess, an innovation that pays lip service to the, those international obligations, while achieving the goal of deterrence, it can spread like wildfire amongst people operating that paradigm, against governments operating that paradigm. Uh, and the other factor that makes asylum policy particularly susceptible to transfers is the fact that uh, there is interdependence between the policy settings in different jurisdictions. So in a very direct way, when a state decides to reject someone at the frontier or to push back a boat at sea, the asylum seekers on that vessel, the asylum seekers are pushed back onto another step. On a more indirect level, uh, there's a perception that when a state introduces restrictive asylum policies, then uh, it pushes asylum seekers to go seek um, refuge elsewhere. And so it creates a sense of competition, which I'll come back to, uh, in which states view themselves as being direct competition with, with, uh, with other destinations and this race to the bottom of developing progressively more restrictive policies. So, the, Australia's asylum policies provide an, an instructive example of this. And uh, our current suite of border control policies has been very much modeled and taken from the US government playbook. 
uh, mandatory detention, which we introduced in the early 1990s, was practiced in the United States with respect to Haitian boat, boat arrivals going back um, to the early 1980s. The maritime interdiction and pushbacks at sea were also carried out against Haitian um, asylum seekers by the United States from the early 1980s, and the uh, US maritime interdiction program has been expanded over the years to target boats from other Caribbean nations, Cuba, also from boats from further afield, like from China, and um, also our offshore processing system. So that our policy of sending asylum seekers to Nauru and Manus Island um, is modeled uh, on the US prison of using uh, its territory in Guantanamo Bay as a uh, migrant processing center. And uh, the reason, the rationale for using Guantanamo Bay was that it has a special, uh, uh, well, it's purported to have a special legal status. And uh, asylum seekers sent there don't have access to the same legal protections that they would if they were held on the mainland. And it was the same <coughs> rationale which led the US government later to use it as a location for holding uh, enemy combatants captured in the course of the war on terror. Uh, there's also US prison for using third countries um, for processing, very similar to what we do um, in Australia. So uh, in 1994, uh, when uh, to augment the capacity on Guantanamo Bay, the, the US government operated a uh, uh, Navy warship in uh, based in the harbour in Kingston, Jamaica, which was used for processing asylum plans. And again, for those same reasons as they were, because it was extraterritorial, the same legal rights that apply in, uh, on the US mainland were said not to apply there. And this is exactly the same rationale behind uh, offshore processing policies in Australia. Uh, we didn't have uh, the equivalent of the Guantanamo Bay, and so we created our own exceptional zones to agreements with our Pacific neighbours. And um, my uh, assertion here about policy transfer of Australia from the US isn't just based on a hunch or on the fact that these policies look really similar on paper. Uh, for my book, I carried out extensive interviews with uh, US and Australian policymakers involved in, in developing these policies. And uh, I spoke with a particular US policymaker who was responsible largely responsible for developing the offshore processing regime in the United States in the early 1990s. And uh, he reported that he provide, provided very detailed policy advice to the Australian government. And this occurred in the context of the Tampa Fed back in 2001. And um, if you recall, the Australian government was holding 433 asylum seekers and the crew of the Norwegian tanker, the MV Tampa at sea, and was scrambling to find a solution that would stop the asylum seekers from disembarking in Australia. And it's these moments when governments are looking for a quick solution that I guess lend themselves most easily to this temptation to look abroad. And this particular US policymaker was uh, summoned uh, to the US Australian Embassy in Geneva, where it was based at the time, and basically in crisis talks for two or three days, providing detailed um, policy advice, uh, which basically provided the blueprint for Pacific Solution, and um, again, by extension, our, our current operating sovereign borders. So, this this transfer of restrictive asylum policies and transfer of deterrence is a light issue. Uh, it's not just a historic one. There have been 
uh, recent calls uh, for Europe to adopt the Australian model uh, in response to uh, the migratory pressures um, they're experiencing now. Um, and I mean, the irony is that really we should be talking about the, the US solution, not the Australian solution. But it highlights, I guess, an interesting difference between the approach of the Australian government and the US government on this issue. Uh, by and large, the US government has gone about these policies quietly, uh, whereas uh, Australian leaders have felt compelled to go out on the international stage and uh, spruik our approach basically as a model for others to follow. So we had um, a, a former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, shortly after he was deposed Prime Minister, um, heading over to Europe for a, a grand tour, basically to call on uh, European leaders to adopt Australia's approach. His, in his Margaret Thatcher lecture, he called, uh, he explained what this meant in practice. He said, this means turning boats around for people coming by sea. It means denying entry at the border for people with no legal right to come. And it means establishing camps for people who currently have nowhere to go. It will require some force. It will require massive logistics and expense. It will gnaw at our consciences. It is the only way to prevent a tide of humanity surging through Europe and quite possibly changing it forever. And uh, in many ways, it's, um, this, this call has met with, um, I guess, a receptive audience uh, in Europe. And uh, I won't talk about the European response too much because Professor Goodwill is going to talk about it. Um, but uh, at first, we saw uh, calls for the Australian model being adopted, picked up by the far right, and we see it slowly moving further towards the, the, the centre, and even some progressive parties like the Social Democrats in Denmark now calling for the introduction of, of offshore processing. So just to, to wrap up, uh, I wanted to highlight some of the risks of um, this diffusion of deterrence. And I want to put to one side the very serious issues relating to the financial and human costs of the policies that we're talking about today. They've been well documented elsewhere. Um, my focus is on the risk of the actual process of diffusion. So my first major concern is, I guess, the quality of the policy making that's uh, resulting from this process of diffusion. Uh, as my anecdote about uh, Australia learning from the US with respect to uh, offshore processing uh, illustrates, the, the discussions that lead to these policy changes take place behind closed doors. And we, we don't have any information about uh, what governments are <coughs> claiming in terms of the effectiveness or the justifications for these policies and what uh, government, what information governments are relying upon to make these drastic policy changes. So the, the other main forums that my interview respondents um, cited as being important for the diffusion of asylum policies were uh, the regional consultative processes. So these are um, informal closed-door closed um, meetings in which governments with similar interests get together to discuss migration policy and asylum policy developments. Uh, so the uh, important one for the diffusion of Australian and between Australia and the United States was the is, it was and continues to be the group of five uh, uh, meetings which include Australia, Canada, the UK, uh, New Zealand, and the United States. And um, 
and um, again, the, by definition, these are closed-door meetings that aren't open to the public, they're not open to NGOs. And so, the, the, I guess my message is that uh, there's nothing wrong with learning from, from abroad. In fact, it makes perfect sense to, to learn from other, what other jurisdictions are doing. But uh, the policy diffusion process needs to have more transparency. There should be more opportunity for NGOs and uh, other interested parties, concerned citizens, to engage in that transfer process. My other main concern relates to the point I flagged earlier about sort of competitive tendencies that can underlie the transfer process. And um, I'm just going to read a, a paraphrased quote uh, from, my, from my book on this. So the risk is that we'll see a race to the bottom as countries compete to deter asylum seekers. This competitive approach creates a vicious cycle in which governments seek to outdo each other by implementing progressively more restrictive policies. When devising asylum policies, governments weigh up their competitiveness in deterring unwanted immigration against the value of abiding by their obligations under international law. As more states opt for deterrence over protection, this places pressure on other states to do the same. This scenario has and will continue to have a devastating impact on the ability of those in danger to seek safety. The protections set out in the Refugee Convention and other human rights treaties are only words. Their effectiveness in the real world is shaped by the actions of states. Implementing international law requires leadership. It needs states to lead by example to persuade other states to protect refugees. This role has traditionally been carried out by wealthy liberal democracies, which have had the resources and the legitimacy required for the task. The harsh policies introduced in the United States and Australia mean these nations now lack the credibility to take on this leadership role. All eyes are now on European states. If Europe goes down the same path as the United States and Australia, they will be inflicting a mortal wound on the universal principle of asylum and the international refugee protection regime more broadly. And sadly, we'll see uh, a return to asylum seekers facing the predicament of those aboard the St. Louis, the vessel uh, I started off my presentation today, where they uh, are out at sea with, with no way to seek protection. Thank you. to reading the book and um, not the most optimistic ending you gave us in your presentation, but, but safe indeed. Um, our, our second speaker tonight, Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, is the Acting Director of University of New South Wales Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Widely recognised as the preeminent legal scholar in the field of international refugee law, he is Emeritus Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, and Emeritus Professor of International Refugee Law of the University of Oxford and practices as a barrister from Blackstone Chambers in London. Welcome back. Thank you very much, and thank you also for the occasion to speak. I'm delighted um, to be able to speak to Daniel's excellent book, What We've Lost, because he brings a large measure of light bear on a topic which is really under-examined. As refugee lawyers, as practicing lawyers, as advocates, we are used to jurisprudence crossing borders. Good cases travel quite fast, openly and above ground. Uh, 
courts throughout the world are quoting each other very often on matters of interpretation of the Refugee Convention and on the grant of asylum and protection. Policymakers and legislators, however, as Daniel has exposed in his book, too often seem to prefer to work on the dark side. Now, what I think Daniel has also shown in his book, perhaps sometimes indirectly, are the, the limits of unilateralism, particularly when one compares, and I take a slightly different perspective on these issues than he does, particularly when, when one compares the options available to a government that is subject to the rule of law, to control by, for example, institutions, supervisory human rights institutions, and a government which has no such constraints or which perceives itself to have no such constraints. And I think what his, his, his book also exposes is some deep democratic issues. And I do seriously believe that we are at risk in relation to what's going on in, with regard to refugees and asylum seekers of seeing our broader conception of liberties uh, deeply undermined. There is, of course, a long history, uh, and naturally, of course, uh, amongst policymakers and legislators relating to policymaking, consultation, exchange, and adaptation. When I was working with the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, after my time in Australia, I was in Geneva, uh, we were joined by a Swedish official on secondment from the Ministry of Immigration, Jonas Widgren. And he didn't have a happy time, he since passed away, but he didn't have a happy time in UNHCR because in our perception, he never really grasped what it meant for the international community to provide international protection to refugees. Or perhaps he did grasp it, but didn't buy into it. He left UNHCR fairly soon and was instrumental in setting up the intergovernmental consultations, which was perhaps the first of these conclaves in which ministers and officials of like mind gathered together to discuss ways and means better to manage uh, refugee and asylum seeker movements. Jonas is actually re remembered also for one quite perceptive remark that he made looking to Eastern Europe and seeing the liberalization that was then going on. He said, we knew what to do if they came in tanks, but we don't know what to do if they come in buses. And I think that's quite perceptive, but also uh, at the time and since then, I see it very much as uh, an expression of fear and a confession of incompetence. And I think those are two factors which drive officials and policymakers to continue the processes which Daniel has described in his book. The intergovernmental consultations meet in Geneva. They have a secretariat in Geneva. Their website is not open to the public. We don't know what they talk about. We perhaps see the effects of what they talk about as we witness yet another disastrous policy in relation to asylum seekers emerging in this or that part of the world. Why do they meet in secret? What is so attractive about secrecy? Um, yes, one can understand also that states generally need and want to better manage the movements of refugees and asylum seekers. And there is a problem here, there is an issue there, because the refugee regime has always been incomplete. It never squared the circle. It talked about sharing responsibility. It talked about providing assistance to countries of first asylum, but never worked out a way effectively to translate that uh, into, into measures on the ground. So why is this why we find states so often talking about the necessity for deterrence, the necessity for deflection? 
Perhaps it is something that states do naturally. It's a sort of version of the beggar thy neighbor policy, which we know about in economics, enhancing one's own position by uh, worsening that of others. Um, when it comes to flows of people and the treatment of people, I do begin to wonder about the, the, the justification, the legitimacy uh, of that sort of approach. So what is it that, that motivates officials, legislators, governments in the direction of negative refugee policies? They're not universal, but they're purposely too, too, they are too common after all. Is it perceptions of unfairness, a feeling that they need to, states need to protect themselves because the rest of the world will not come to their rescue? There is an element there, I think. Back in 1980, when Australia was admitting Indochina refugees, it was beginning to think a little strategically about the future, about the present and about the future. And it promoted in the UNHCR a very important, a seminal conclusion adopted by the UNHCR's executive committee on temporary protection. But the other agenda which Australia pursued at that time was in relation to international cooperation, because there was a very real apprehension that perhaps the rest of the world would look at Australia and say, that's a big, empty country. Surely you can take everyone and leave Australia to do it. But Australia, I think, strategically put into place endorse an endorsement, which other states were happy to follow on, about cooperation, about joining in multilaterally to relieve the burden on refugee-receiving countries and to assist in finding solutions. What else might motivate states towards the negative policies? Um, it is, as I mentioned a moment ago, the absence which is perhaps going to be, not, if not remedied, um, moderated through the Global Compact on refugees which, refugees, which is currently being debated. It's the absence of more effective, more equitable means of sharing responsibility and achieving solutions. Again, ideas that were put forward by the Secretary General of the UN in 1950, before states signed on to the 1951 Convention, the Secretary General pointed out that the whole system would depend upon cooperation, would depend upon lightening the burden on those countries in the front line. And he proposed that states accept obligations in that regard. Not that specific obligations, but general obligations to assist countries of first asylum and to admit a certain number, never specified, of refugees. States said no. Want nothing to do with that. No obligations in relation to the admission of refugees. And then again, we come back to fear, and I think that is increasingly, in my view, a factor. Fear that is real, fear that is ingenerated. The fear, the apprehension that by perhaps improving the treatment of the refugee and the asylum seeker, one would make the country too attractive to those obliged to flee, and so consequently end up bearing more than a, a fair share of the burden of responsibility. Well, each of those elements, which I think may be present Nonetheless, it seems to me to constitute a rather sad reflection uh, on the state of our governors. So we have, as, as Daniel has pointed out in his book very thoroughly, policies of deterrence, of deflection, of detention, and if we want another alliterative noun, damage, the damage that is done to those on the receiving end of these policies. And what he shows in his book also, and it, it's worth re-emphasizing, is that deterrence is and always has been an unproven assumption. Um, it doesn't take much imagination, it doesn't take much intelligence to see that when 
what drives you to flee is so serious, you are not going to be put off by tales of deterrence. If you are desperate, if you are fleeing conflict or persecution, then you will put the best light, you will shine the best light on what awaits you. But of course, politicians, bureaucrats, generally have not spoken to refugees or learned to understand what it is that leads them to take risks that you and I would never take. We've seen that so much of that in the Mediterranean, crossing the Mediterranean in recent years. Families doing what you and I would think was foolhardy. But these are perfectly, as we know from the research that's been done, perfectly rational choices. Individuals have weighed up the risks and weighed them against their current situation and decided that that is the only way. And that seems to escape the policymaker, uh, the decision maker, who believes that, deter that they can effectively deter that movement by policies of incarceration without limit. And then the refugee himself, herself, the asylum seeker. Uh, so often I've heard this story when I was with the UNHCR in particular, that innate belief that they have in the fundamental goodness of human nature. They're not necessarily thinking of the bureaucrats and politicians we know, but they, they so often think that, yes, there may be a, a policy of detention without, without limit, but once they hear my story, once they hear what I've been through, they'll understand and not apply it to me. But no, that is faith that is too often sadly misplaced. Now, Daniel points out the hypothesis, the deterrence hypothesis, has never been tested. It is empirically unproven. Actually, I would say the contrary has certainly some evidence to back it up. The evidence of earlier deterrence models, Germany used it in the 1980s, for example, suggests that it's not a viable base for any uh, policy towards those seeking to move. So what we have is, is, it seems to me, many elements which may help to explain none of them necessarily controlling, may help to explain why it is uh, the policymakers go for the hard, the hard choice. For a start, I think there's a public relations dimension. It's easy, it's an easy sell. And when you listen to politicians talking about what they are going to do to asylum seekers and refugees, you can hear them thinking, I'm going to talk tough now. I'm going to show the asylum seekers and, by extension, my constituents, the voters, that we're going to brook no exception, that no one comes here without being invited first. So the PR side, I think, is important, and it's the electoral dimension, of course, that comes in here. Then there's a, a, a somewhat more worrying dimension, too, and it's that desire, and I, 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 I see it too often in ministries of immigration, ministries of home affairs, the desire always to maximize control, the, the vision that certain ministries have of themselves as gatekeepers, uh, seeing themselves as finally the last bullock against insecurity or threat. Borders, of course, are a useful place in which to develop that approach, the gatekeeper mentality. But what we know is that very often those measures of control will go beyond the border and come to affect us all. So I think there's that element too in this new Ministry of Home Affairs combining so many disparate elements which poses potentially the most serious threat to the civil liberties which we, we take for granted. But it's an area in which also uh, we can find, we find governments exploiting what are the grey areas, there are many grey areas in international law and regulation. 
fear again comes in, the fear uh, of, the, of the newcomer, of the other. And it's coupled also with incompetence, <coughs> fear, I think, amongst bureaucrats that we, we can't manage. And that's so seriously wrong, it seems to me, because we've shown that we ourselves can manage when people arrive unannounced. We can put mechanisms in place which allow us to deal effectively and well with those who claim protection amongst us. Now, what is often not so easy is doing is following through and sending back to their countries of origin those who, after a proper hearing, have been found not to need protection. And we haven't been able to square that circle because we don't like to deal with the migration dimension multilaterally. We like to deal with it unilaterally or to pretend that we can. So there's that element of, of competence as well. Plus, sometimes other worrying factors. Daniel mentioned um, the introduction of Haitian interdiction in 1981. Now, that decision to start intercepting boats followed a couple of very interesting court cases in the Florida Southern District. Uh, a first instance judgment and a judgment on appeal, in which the federal courts found that in the years leading up to 1980, the Immigration and Naturalization Service had been discriminating against Haitian asylum seekers on racial grounds, and on the ground that they were poor as well. And uh, there were a huge number in the backlog of Haitian asylum seekers, uh, which the INS was unable, for those and various other reasons, to deal with effectively. And it was seen, and it seems to me, Haitian addiction was seen as a, an extension, if you like, of what were policies driven by race and other prejudice. And then there's the, the lack of strategic thinking, which I think uh, has, which I think has affected um, and, and, and led Australia to where it is today. The failure to, to implement a policy in cooperation with others. And that's a lack of imagination on the part of, of the policymakers, reflecting a sad unwillingness to cooperate meaningfully and effectively in providing protection and solutions. It's that the lure of unilateralism which we see too much of these days, which generally ends in, in tragedy. And the consequences, of course, and Daniel has set these out again in his book, the consequences of states adopting these negative policies have been serious in the extreme. Detention, arbitrary, because it's unreasoned, because it's detached from any viable end. And of course, abuse and ill-treatment. Um, the government may pretend that it did not admit liability when it paid $70 million in compensation to just short of 2,000 asylum seekers and refugees, but we know that they were liable for that abuse and that ill-treatment. And it's still going on. Abusive denial of medical care is still going on in Papua New Guinea and Nauru because of Australia's decisions, so sad. And when I say there was no strategic thinking, Australia had not thought through what it might have done. Um, it might have said to the world, look, we cannot deal with those who arrive by boat the rest of the world. If you help us out, we will triple our contribution to UNHCR, we will double our refugee intake. And they might have had some takers. But through not engaging multilaterally, Australia, as it were, ended up in the situation where it is now, having to be rescued by Barack Obama, to some extent at least. The other consequence, I think, flows from that secrecy which I mentioned a moment ago. Like the interstate consultations themselves, which Daniel has highlighted, secrecy surrounds, as we know, the implementation of policy. Why? Again, I think I would put my finger on various elements. 
we are told perhaps that the policy and programs must be secret in order not to put the smuggling, the business smugglers, the smugglers on notice of what we're doing. That's sheer and utter nonsense, of course. There's no way that smugglers would be put off uh, by what Australia was doing. They would be, I think, more likely to be encouraged to find ways and means around around the, the, the measures taken and then to up their prices. But I think that what is the secrecy is intended to do is to, to seek to avoid the responsibility of the state and to seek to avoid the civil and criminal liability of individuals from the top down for the consequences of the policies which they have, they have applied. And it's here that I see the, the threat, this particular threat to democracy. Anyone who reads the Washington Post these days will know that their new flag is democracy dies in darkness. And I think there's a, a great truth in that simple label. And secrecy itself, it seems to me, reflects that anti, not none, but anti-democratic tendency which serves the goal of an ever-expanding and unaccountable executive, both here and elsewhere. We see it also, that tendency, within another dimension of the law reflecting that approach, which is the, the personal, non-compellable discretion, which Daniel mentioned in his book, it, which to me, to my mind, is also the antithesis of democratic and accountable decision-making. Now, I'm, as an, in, an international lawyer and someone who's worked in the field of refugee advocacy and protection for many years, I don't perhaps take such a pessimistic view of the future as Daniel does. There has always been, and there always will be, a tension between the obligations which states accept and their practice, which will always, it seems to me, seek to maximize self-interest. That's the nature of, of the game, that tension. It's what, make, it's what makes international law a dynamic area of law, and therefore quite uh, exciting. But law always, like nature, abhors a vacuum. Domestic law may excuse for now what is going on, but there are other mechanisms of, account mechanisms of accountability, even though, sadly, they may sometimes seem too distant. It's interesting that a lot of talk has been generated by recent practices about the necessity for a Bill of Rights. And I was reminded of how when Britain was going through the process of decolonizing and setting up constitutions for states that would newly be and shortly be independent, it had the tendency of tacking on at the end of every new constitution a variation of the European Convention of Human Rights, an interesting exercise in exporting, um, which didn't often take root, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's, it's an in, it was an interesting example of, of, of trying to move bills of rights around the world. Unfortunately, of course, as we know, Australia's constitution was adopted too early for that to be attempted. We do have a major, as I said a moment ago, I think, a major democratic deficit, um, particularly because the traditional controls which we're used to in democratic society by way of judicial review tend to be weak and the system overall tends to be out of balance. But from an international law perspective, it looks somewhat different. Um, we do have principles of state responsibility which are indisputable. Uh, they flow from, for example, the exercise of authority and control by the state over individuals such as refugees and asylum seekers. And where there is attribution of the conduct of, of, of organs of the state to the state and breach of obligation, then responsibility flows. We also have principles of individual civil and criminal liability reflected in certain areas of international law. The challenge is to find a jurisdiction, of course, in which these might be applied. 
but there are some 16 countries which recognize universal jurisdiction, and therefore 16 jurisdictions at least, at which policymakers, officials, uh, and implementers might find themselves at risk of prosecution. There is a reason why John Yoo, one of the architects of the torture memorandum in the US, doesn't travel abroad. Effectiveness, has it been effective? Has Australia's policy adopted from the US been effective? We can't really know um, because of the secrecy. Perhaps 17 boats have come through and their, their passengers have been quietly disseminated through Australia's very efficient resettlement procedure. Uh, if a minister were to admit that, of course, then he or she would confess the failure of the policy and also have to go to jail for two years for breaching uh, the 2012 Act. Has the sum of protection of solutions actually increased? That's what I would ask myself if I were considering the question of effectiveness. And again, we can't be sure that that hasn't been the case, and I very much doubt that it is, it is indeed the case. I very much doubt that the sum of protection and solutions for refugees around the world has been increased. So what we have, I think, is a lesson coming out of Daniel's book that I mentioned a moment ago in starting, about the, the limits of unilateralism. And this was recognized by the General Assembly in 1946, which stressed that the refugee problem was international in scope and nature that no state should be expected to carry the responsibility on its own, but that every state which admitted refugees was acting on behalf of the international community, and for that reason in particular should have the support of the international community, material, political, and in the provision of solutions for refugees. Thank you. Thank you, Guy, very much. Um, we have about 15 about these private conclaves of nation-states and about issues of secrecy. We also talked about the limits of unilateralism as opposed to multilateralism in addressing these kind of issues. Issues raised around burden sharing and perhaps a lack of clarity of, of, of each state's obligations in terms of sharing those burdens and the importance, on the other hand, of international cooperation to do so. Issues around fear, around the lack of understanding or the lack of empathy of policy makers I don't know how many of you have seen Ai Weiwei's documentary that's been screening recently in Sydney and around the country, but um, when I saw it, the first thing I thought was that it should be compulsory viewing for every policymaker and every politician and should be strapped to their seats and made to watch it. Um, issues around uh, control and the use of control by nation states and also the, the increasing use of um, unaccountable discretion and how we can hold them to account. And finally, issues around the lack of strategic policy and strategic thinking combined with a lack of evidence about the effectiveness of deterrence. Thank you all for joining us in the discussion and would you please join me in thanking our presenters and the other